Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. So we took a little bit of a detour at Advent, and we've spent the last four weeks talking about the Advent season. But before Advent and the onset of the Christmas season, we were uh, working our way through the book of Acts. So we're going to go back to Acts, and we are in Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. And so when we last were in Acts, we saw that the Apostle Paul and the disciples left Berea, and in fact it says that they sent Paul ahead to Athens, and so Paul sailed across the Adriatic Sea from Asia to the European continent, to Greece, and made their way from to Philippi, to Thessalonica, and then because they got into trouble with the Jews who were opposing them. They left Thessalonica. They went to Berea. They were well-received by the Bereans, but then the Jews of Thessalonica came and stirred them up, and so they sent Paul on ahead. And now Paul is in the great city of Athens in Greece, and Paul is waiting for the other disciples to catch up with him But while Paul is waiting for their arrival, he is not idle while he is there in Athens. So let's begin in verse 16. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Thank you. I don't know why I'm having a hard time, to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit dwelling in us, illuminate this word, that it would transform us by the renewing of our mind, that we would be a people conformed to the very image of the Son of glory, that we would give witness to you and to your light in this dark world. We ask this, Father, for your glory In Jesus' name, amen. So here in this section of Scripture, we see Paul comes to Athens, and the Bible immediately tells us that Paul was provoked within himself. His spirit was provoked within himself. And we can be provoked to sin, or we can be provoked to obedience. So remember, even the kids... They didn't know what it meant to be provoked, but have you ever been angry? Have you ever been upset? Have you ever been disturbed? Yes. 
So we've all experienced provocation. We've all been provoked in various ways. And Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians, be angry and do not sin. That's Ephesians 4.26. So being angry is not a sin, but it's very easy to fall into sin when we fall into anger. So Paul was provoked when he went to Athens. In fact, he was angered by what he saw and what he experienced because of the idolatry that filled the city. But he was righteously angry. He was righteously indignant. Paul was provoked not to sin, but he was provoked to obedience. So it should be with us today as we see idolatry fill our churches, our cities, and the people around us. And that is a reality. We should be provoked to anger, not unrighteously, but righteously. So our righteous provocation is a right reaction to sin. Verse 16 says, Now while Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, and he saw that the city was given over to idols. So Paul's spirit was provoked. Paul went to Athens. He saw the idolatry. And the word indicates, this, this word provoked indicates a very strong emotional reaction or emotional response of being stirred or greatly troubled. In fact, the NIV translates it this way. It says that Paul was greatly distressed by what he saw. So literally, Paul's spirit was upset within him. The visible or the invisible idolatry around us is cause for our own spirit to be provoked within us. There is a cause for our spirit to be provoked within us when we see the church fall into idolatry. This really is about what our, our new Sunday school lesson that we'll start We've already started with two video lessons, and then we'll start the curriculum in two weeks. And this is really what uh, this lesson is about. It is about the idolatry or the paganism that is not just creeping into the church, but it is here. I mean, it's in the church. In places that have traditionally spoke against that, stood against that, have now opened the doors and are openly embracing idolatry and paganism. And because we are so worried about offending people, because we are so worried about saying the wrong thing, we refuse to say the right thing. And if we are so concerned about offending people that we can't tell them the right thing, that in itself is sin, and we have fallen into the sin of idolatry because we fear man more than we fear God. We make man our idol by refusing to tell man the truth. And so this is a real problem in the church today. This is the invisible idolatry all around us, and it should cause our spirit to be provoked within us. So we may not see statues or monuments of pagan gods and goddesses decorating and filling the landscape of our cities like it was in Athens. And you can still go to Athens today and see the shrines and the temples 
and and it, it was it literally was a city filled with idols. We may not see blatant worship in false gods in hedonistic fashion, and we're going to talk about that as we talk about the philosophies that really overrun Athens. We might not see those things around us in the form we think of when we think of ancient Athens, but it is around us. Pornography is a multi-billion dollar industry, and that is idolatry at best and much worse. And so this idolatry, these things that we worship, these rituals that we involve ourselves in that we don't think of as being rituals or spiritual, but do you realize that the enemy does not care whether you believe it's spiritual or whether you believe it's ritual? If he can suck you into getting involved in that type of idolatry, any type of idolatry, He doesn't care what you believe about it. He doesn't care what you think about it. All he cares is that there is something that has become more valuable, more important to you than God. And it can be something that the world would call good. It can be innocent. It can be not even what we would call wicked, but It would be wicked in the eyes of God because we are putting something or someone before the Lord. So we don't see the same physical environment Paul found when he arrived in first century Athens, but idolatry is alive and well in many forms within our cities and within the hearts of the people. A city is nothing without people. A city is made up of people. A nation is made up of people. So when we talk of the church, when we talk of a city, when we talk of a nation, we're really talking about people. And we're really talking about the hearts of people. And this is why Paul was so disturbed because what he saw in the environment, in the physical landscape of Athens, just revealed to him what was in or really what was not in the hearts of the people. Their hearts were filled with all kinds of gods and all kinds of idols, but their hearts were not filled with the true and living God, their creator. So the environment Paul found in in Athens was not unique to Athens. Many other cities in that environment of the first century were filled with idolatry. But the long history of Athens as a world center of culture and worship of the gods of Greece and then Rome was well known. And it is still impacting us today. And we're going to see this as we look in this lesson. So idolatry, whatever form or fashion it takes, should provoke our spirit within us. At the very least, it should provoke us to pray and to do spiritual warfare in opposition to idolatry that seeks to hold our hearts and the hearts of all people captive. And the enemy is very subtle. He, you know, it's like the devil. You watch horror movies and these, these movies and you see these grotesque monsters and demons. You know that's not how the, the enemy comes to you. The Bible says Satan comes to us as an angel of light. 
You would never know he was a demon. You would never know he was a devil. You would never know he was bent on your destruction. When the devil came to Adam and Eve in the garden, he came as the serpent. He came very subtly and deceived them into disobedience. But ultimately, even though they were deceived, it was their choice to choose to become their own God instead of trusting in their God and creator. And it's the same lie. It's the same thing that the enemy is doing for us today, doing to us today, attempting to, to draw us away from the truth. And so when we see this, it should at the very least motivate us to pray. But I believe, as we know, Paul did pray. We saw in the previous lessons in Acts that when he got to Philippi, the first thing he did was look for the place of prayer. There wasn't a synagogue in Philippi, but he knew there would be a place of prayer, and he knew it would be near the water because of his Jewish upbringing, because of the, the worship of the Jews. And so he goes to the river, and he finds the place of prayer. So Paul was a man of prayer, and Paul prayed, and he, Paul did spiritual warfare against those things that provoked his spirit within him. Paul did the hard work of prayer, but he also did the hard work of ministering and evangelizing and making disciples. In other words, Paul didn't just pray. Paul used his praying, and he used his prayer, and he used the power of prayer to prepare him to go out and do the work that Jesus commanded him and Jesus commands all believers to do. So he went out and did the hard work of ministering and evangelizing. Paul's faith in Christ worked hard in prayer, but it also worked hard in literally going out to make disciples. So our provocation is for our obedience to God because that's what the provocation of Paul's spirit within him resulted in. It resulted in Paul's obedience. Verse 17, therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. There's a lot in that one verse and just this verse right here. Prayer is a point of obedience and we are to pray how? Jesus taught us his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus said when you pray, pray like this. Pray to the Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we are praying literally for heaven to invade and earth to conform. That's what Jesus said. Pray heaven to invade and pray that the earth conform. We are the invasion force of heaven. Do you realize this? You are not earthly beings if you are in Christ. Now you live on the earth you live in the world, but the Bible is very clear. Jesus said, you might be in the world, but if you have been born again, if you've been born from above, you're in the world, but you're not of the world. You are not in Christ of the earth any longer. This is where we live, but we are now born of the Spirit, born from above. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus. Unless a man is born again, he can't even see the kingdom of God. Don't marvel that I said a man must be born again. That which is flesh is flesh, that which is of the Spirit is spirit. You must be born from above, born from the Spirit. And so when we talk about 
God's kingdom coming and his will being done, the invasion force God is using in the earth is us. It's his church. We are his people, empowered with his love by the Spirit to bring the earth and all of it, all of creation, into submission to the Lord. This is what God told Adam and Eve. Go forth, be fruitful, and multiply. This is why Peter Jones brought this out in the video this morning. We think God looked at Adam and said, it's not good for man to be alone, not because God was worried about Adam's emotional health. That wasn't the point. The point was, and this is why God made Adam name all the animals first, and Adam come to the realization, there is no one like me. Because what could all the animals do that Adam couldn't do? They could procreate, but Adam could not procreate. Adam could not produce one like his own because there was no one like him. And when Adam got that realization, God put Adam in a death-like sleep, removed his rib, formed the woman from the rib of Adam, and, and made Eve, the mother of all living, from the life of Adam. It's a picture of Christ in the church. This is how we have come to live today. This is how we have come to eternal life today. Jesus died on the cross, and out of his life, we have been formed. We have been made. We have been born again from above. This, this is who we are. And so when we go forth in the earth, we are to go forth and do exactly what God told Adam and Eve to do, be fruitful and multiply. We are to fill the earth with the image of God. This is why Adam and no other thing of creation was created in the image of God. Because Adam was to multiply and fill the earth with the image of God. And this is what the scripture says that we are doing. There is coming a day, the Bible says, when the knowledge of the glory of God will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah wrote that. Habakkuk wrote that, and that is becoming a reality as the children of God, born again from above, go forth and take dominion, become fruitful and multiply. The, the mandate given in Genesis is re-given with different words at the end of Matthew's gospel, at the end of all the gospels, Matthew Chapter 28, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is just like God telling Adam and Eve in the beginning, be fruitful and multiply, fill and subdue the earth. That's exactly what Jesus tells us to do before he ascends to the Father. That commission, that command from Jesus had a beginning point and it does not have an ending point until Jesus comes back to this earth and puts his last enemy, which will be death, underfoot. Until then, from the very beginning until right now, we are to be obeying the command of Jesus. And this is what Paul did. He was provoked in his spirit within himself. And he went out and he began to do exactly what Jesus told the church to do. He began to preach the gospel. He began to make disciples. It says that he reasoned with them in the synagogue. The word reasoned, as in he reasoned with the Jews, is the Greek word that we get our word dialogue from. 
So you might, maybe someone, you've, you've heard someone say or someone said to you, why don't we have a dialogue? Why don't we have a conversation? This is what it means to reason. Paul went and reasoned with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers. That word also means to dispute, to discuss, to argue. That's what it means to dialogue. That's what it means to reason. And he did that concerning the gospel of Christ. And Paul did this each Sabbath in the synagogue, and he did it daily in the marketplace. So if you were to look at a a map of Athens, of ancient Athens, you'd see that there was a place called the marketplace, the Agora. And the marketplace was was the center of activity. It was the center of culture. It was the center of commerce. It's where people went to meet socially. It's where people went to do business. It's, It's where everything happened. It was the center of that town. And so Paul knew that the center of worship for the Jews and the Gentiles who worshiped the God of the Jews would be the synagogue. So every Sabbath, he would go to the synagogue to encounter people already seeking to worship the true God. But then he would go every day to the marketplace where all the pagans hung out and did everything that they did. And it says that he reasoned with them not only in the synagogue, but he reasoned with them in the marketplace. And he reasoned with whoever happened to be there. That's exactly what the text says. He went to the marketplace every day, and he reasoned with whoever happened to be there. So who should you witness to? You should witness to whoever happens to be there. Whether it's someone you've known for years, or someone you just met by chance. And this is what Paul did. And it seems that Paul became a fixture very quickly, well enough known that the people began to notice him. And this is what our obedience will do. Our obedience will open doors. Verse 18, then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, I don't know how many of you remember your philosophy class from school, but these were men who followed a certain worldview, um, a certain philosophy, a certain way of viewing the world and understanding the world. Both of these philosophies, by the way, rejected God. Both of these philosophies were materialistic. They were they were. They were basically founded on the natural world. That's what they understood. Epicurean philosophy believed that pleasure was the chief goal. The word hedonism, this is where it comes from. For Epicureans, pleasure was the chief goal, and everything was measured by the level of pleasure or the level of pain. If it gave you pleasure, it was good. If it created pain, it was bad. Epicureans relied upon sense experience for knowledge. They did believe, by the way, in the atomic world, so they they knew that the world was made up of atoms. So how would they know that? They didn't have electron microscopes. This is our pride in our modern world. We think ancient man didn't have any knowledge. 
the technology and the knowledge ancient man possessed would blow your mind if people would tell you the truth about it. But because it doesn't fit the evolutionary model that we indoctrinate our children with, we can't tell people the truth about the technology and the knowledge ancient man had because it, would, it flies in the face of evolution. That's a whole different topic I can't get into today. But the Epicureans believed in the atomic world and they knew everything was made up of matter because it was, matter was all around them. But it was very hedonistic in its belief and its practice. Not necessarily immoral, but you can see where if pleasure is your focus, it can lead to immorality. But Epicureans who were serious about their worldview and their philosophy weren't necessarily immoral, but they were pagan. They were, in essence, their own God. And they believed in a a oneist system. If you come to Sunday school, you'll understand what that means. It's simply a, a word for paganism. And so Epicureans sought to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. Stoic philosophy was a rival philosophy to Epicurean thought. Stoic philosophy is materialistic and ruled by the natural order. And this is why the resurrection, when Paul mentions the resurrection, you're going to see that they didn't want to listen to him anymore. Because the resurrection was contrary and pointless to them. If this God you profess to believe in and profess to be real is, is indeed real, why would he bother resurrecting himself? We don't see the point in that. Stoicism is a philosophy of personal ethics. So it was all about right behavior, which sounds good, maybe on the surface, but what do we know about the gospel of Jesus Christ? You cannot save yourself by being good. You can't focus so much on morality and right living that you can earn your way to heaven. If you could do that, then Jesus died for nothing. And the Bible says he did not die for nothing. He died to save his people because we were hopeless apart from a savior. Well, Epicureans and Stoics did not believe that. Another interesting thing about Stoics is they believed in this thing called the Logos. Now, some people will point this out. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That word translated word is the Greek word logos. Some critics point out, well, you know, Christianity was just copying the Stoic philosophy. No, actually it was not. The Stoics who believed in the Logos, the Logos who gave everything life, the Logos who gave everything its nature and everything has to conform to it, was not separate from its creation. You were part of that Logos. That Logos created you. Therefore, you weren't separate from the Logos. You were just an expression of the Logos, which might not sound bad or it may sound innocent, but this is the problem with Hinduism. Hinduism, they have millions of gods, literally, but basically, or Buddhism. At the end of the day, Eastern belief, you, you, you are part of the source. You are part of 
God, if you want to call him God. You know, Buddha did not believe in God, and Buddhism is not a religion that has a God. Buddhism is not about a God. Buddhism is about a way of life. Hinduism is about gods and goddesses. But it's funny how they all merge, and they all kind of say and believe much of the same thing. So John chapter 1, here's the difference between the logo of the Stoics and the logo of the Word of God. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. That's what John says. The Logos, who is God, is different from his creation. We are the creation, and there is a creator, one true and living God. We are made in his image, created in his image, but we are not the same as he is. And this is very important for us. Where did the philosophers get their thoughts and their beliefs? Well, it came from their minds and their observations of the world. But the world was created through the true Logos, Jesus Christ. And all of the knowledge they had originated somewhere. It originated with the Logos, with the God who created all things. That's where it originated. That somewhere and that someone is God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And this is the God the Athenians did not know. This is the God that Paul was proclaiming to them. This is the unknown God that he speaks of. I see you've got an idol and a statue and a memorial for every God under heaven. And just in case you missed one, you even made one to the unknown God. This is the God I'm going to tell you about. This is the God you don't know. So our obedience to God will unfold his plan. It is likely that Paul had no idea what was going to happen when he got to Athens. But as we do, Paul understood that God has a plan and a purpose in all things. We know that. You know that, don't you? God has a plan and a purpose in all things. God has a plan and a purpose for COVID. God has a plan and a purpose for the good, the bad, and the ugly. We know this. But what we don't know is how that plan will actually look or how that plan will actually play out. We don't know that. We know God has a plan and a purpose, but we don't know what it's going to look like or what the immediate outcome of that plan and purpose might be. Oftentimes, we want God to unfold his plan for our approval. But that's not how it works. God does not need our approval. He does, though, demand our obedience. You say, God, that's a strong word, Pastor Jeff. He demands? God doesn't demand. Oh, yes, he does. He demands. He does. And that's not bad. He has the right to demand because he is God. And we are his creation. And one of the most powerful and life-changing things about obedience to God is that our obedience reduces, listen to me, church, it reduces our need to know. Our obedience reduces our 
our need to know and increases our ability to trust God with all that is unknown. And there's a lot of unknown things, isn't there, in this world? Contrary to our fear of the unknown, it is consistent, faithful obedience that actually unfolds the plan and the purpose of God and gives us eyes to see the wonder of his working. People tell me all the time, I just wish I knew what God was doing. Well, just start walking in obedience and you're going to find out exactly what he's doing. Our faith grows with our obedience And as our obedience demonstrates our faith by our works, obedience to Christ strengthens our faith, especially in the midst of all the things that God does not yet allow us to know. Remember, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Obedience will produce ridicule. They called Paul a babbler, which might not sound like, anything bad to you, just someone who talks too much. But it's a term from the Greek that literally means one who picks up seeds. They called Paul a seed picker. That's not a term of endearment. It was a pejorative meant to belittle Paul. The word pictures a bird going around picking up seeds. And what they were saying was that Paul is just some uneducated wannabe philosopher hanging around the marketplace, picking up seeds from the other philosophers and then regurgitating it to try to make himself look good. But his message was very different. And it became apparent to the philosophers that Paul had picked up seeds from some other source than than theirs. His message was not the same humanistic philosophies of Athens and Greek culture and religion. Paul had come with a different message, one that carried with it the resurrection power of the true and the living God. This so-called babbler would give them the testimony of truth found only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so our obedience may create ridicule, but it will also carry us places that we would not otherwise be able to go. So when they determined that Paul had a different message, they took him to the Oropagus. And the Oropagus was this ancient site in Athens where the Athenian council would convene. It had existed for over 500 years. It's no doubt where Socrates went to get his death sentence because of his beliefs. By the time Paul got there, it was called Mars Hill. Oropagus literally means hill of Ares. Ares was the Greek war of God, uh, Greek god of war, executed at the Oropagus. He received his death sentence there because he killed the son of another god. By the time Paul gets there, Mars is the Roman god of war, and it was called Mars Hill. So when you hear about Paul going to Mars Hill, this is where he went. And he appeared before this council. It wasn't a trial. It wasn't a civil proceeding. By the time Paul gets there, Rome ruled the the world, but this was still a place where philosophers would gather to, to determine whether a teaching or a belief system was right or was wrong. So they brought Paul there before this council, to discuss, to reason, 
about this belief system, this God he was proclaiming. And as the scripture indicates, this is what the men of Athens devoted their time to, to hear or to tell some new thing. Paul would present a new thing, something new to them, something that they had not heard before. They had never heard the gospel. Paul's obedience carried him before this council to proclaim to these seekers of truth, Jesus Christ, who is the truth, who is the way and the life. We are called to the same. Perhaps not to councils, perhaps not to courts, but to our children and to our families, to our friends and to our co-workers, to anyone who happens to be there. We are called to proclaim this gospel. And what we're going to do right now, in obedience to the gospel, is baptize a disciple. A disciple by the name of Matthias Paul Machida. Now, as we get ready to do this, I, wanted, I want you to hear the word of the Lord, and I want you to understand what we're getting ready to do. I'm going to call you guys up in just a moment. So baptism is a point of obedience. The Lord has commanded the church to administer baptism in obedience to the command of Christ to go and to make disciples, to baptize them and to teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded. And the most important disciple believing parents will ever make is their own child. Don't worry about saving the world, parents, until you are focused on discipling your own children. Today, we baptize Matthias, but his parents, with the support of the church through this local body, will disciple and teach this child for the rest of his life. Our Lord has expressly given little children a place among the people of God, a holy privilege that must not be denied them. Remember the words of our Lord Jesus when he said, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of God. By baptism, we are initiating Matthias into the covenant community. Acts 2.41 By baptism, we are making him a member of the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. So today we celebrate as, Math as Matthias by the sacrament of baptism will be initiated into the covenant community and made a member of the body of Christ. This is true whether you're three weeks old or whether you're 83 years old. It represents the same thing. What we do not believe is that baptism imports or imparts the regenerating grace of God to this child. In other words, we do not believe his baptism will save him. Baptism doesn't save us. Jesus saves us. We affirm that we are not saved by water baptism, but we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Baptism is an outward and visible sign of the grace of the Lord Jesus Water baptism is an outward sign of an inward work. It is the sign of God's work of grace by the Holy Spirit that is made manifest through saving faith in Jesus Christ. Any one of you could say, Pastor, I want to get baptized right now because I trust in Jesus. 
and I would baptize you. But what's going to really determine your salvation is not your baptism, not whether I poured or dunked you in water. What's going to determine your salvation is how you walk out your life. Because the fruit is determined by the root. So we do believe, we do believe that Christ gave this holy sacrament as a sign and seal of the new covenant, just as circumcision did under the old covenant. Christian baptism signifies this young child, God's gracious acceptance into the covenant. And it is an acknowledgement of God's grace at work in the life of this child within the care of his father and mother the extended family, and under the nurture of this faith community. It points forward to his personal response to God's grace when he exercises conscious, saving faith in Jesus. So this is about the covenant, and the Psalms teach us much about covenant. Psalm 103, 17 and 18 says, But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness unto children's children, to such as keep his covenant and to those that remember his commandments to do them. And it was David who said in Psalm 22, 9 and 10, You are he who took me from the womb. You made me to trust you at my mother's breast. On you as I was cast from my birth and from my mother's womb you have been my God. And in the 25th Psalm, David cries out to the Lord that the Lord would teach him his ways. And he says, the secret or the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. These parents have literally made a disciple. Now they are baptizing him and are committing to obey God's word to train him up in the fear and nurture of the Lord and teach him to obey all that Christ has commanded. Let us pray and ask that God would honor his name here today in this covenant baptism. Father in heaven, it is our prayer that you would show us your covenant. With the psalmist, I declare from you comes our praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. This time has come and is being fulfilled because of the work of the cross and the resurrection of our Messiah. I ask, Father, that you would honor your name here now. You are able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So now I'm going to ask Audrey and Bradley to bring baby Matthias up. And I am going to give them their covenant vows as parents of this child. And then I'm going to give you, congregation, your covenant vows as the family of God that is going to support them. So Bradley and Audrey, do you acknowledge the need Matthias has of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit? We do. 
Do you trust in God's covenant promises on behalf of Matthias, and do you look in faith to the Lord Jesus for his salvation just as you do your own? Do you now unreservedly dedicate Matthias to God and promise in humble reliance upon divine grace that you will endeavor to set before him a godly example that you will pray with him and for him, that you will teach him the doctrines of our holy faith and that you will strive by all the means of God's appointment to bring him up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. On the basis of your faith expressed here, do you resolve by the grace of God not only to bring him up as your natural son, but also from this day forward to consider him as your brother in the Lord as a joint heir of all God's covenant blessings? Congregation, do you undertake the responsibilities of a covenant community in assisting these parents in the Christian nurture of this child? If so, please signify by a hearty amen. 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 So, bring Matthias up. On the basis of your and our profession of covenant faith, I baptize Matthias Paul Machida, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, descend upon you and reside in your heart forever. Amen. Now, Matthias is now received into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You, the people of this congregation, in receiving this child, promise with God's help to be his people to the end that he may faithfully walk in Christ all his days and come at last to Christ's eternal kingdom. Jesus said, whoever shall receive one such little child in my name receives me. So here is the charge, and I want us all to recite this together. Let us receive Matthias Paul Machida with this charge. So please recite with me. It's right up there. Little child, for you, Jesus Christ, came to this earth, struggled and suffered for your sake. He crossed Gethsemane and went through the darkness of Calvary. For your sake, he cried, It is finished. For your sake he died, and for your sake he overcame death. Indeed, for your sake, little child, and you still knowing nothing of it, and thus the word of the apostle is confirmed, we love God, for he first loved us. Amen. Let's all stand. Paul went to Athens to make disciples. He was obeying command of Jesus, the command that was not just given to Paul or John or Peter or James, the command that's given to all of us throughout all the ages until Jesus comes again and sets foot on this earth and puts his very last enemy underfoot. 
Discipleship is not a program. It's not a class we take. It's not a book we read. Discipleship is much more than that. We've seen it in action here today. It is the baptism of babies. It's the baptism of adults. It's our baptism into the covenant. It's our living out the covenant. It's our commitment to walk with our children and all of our brothers and sisters, whatever age they are in the faith. It is a lifestyle we live out daily with the purpose of impacting anyone and everyone who happens to be there. If we live a lifestyle of consistent obedience, trusting God, in time we will find that we have discipled our families, our friends, and eventually the nations. I'm not saying it's a quick process, but it is not a complicated process, though it is hard work. Discipleship starts with us. From us, it will spread to those around us, and this is how God changes the world, one life at a time. Your life matters. Your obedience to God matters more than you know. God will use your obedience, and from faithful obedience, your trust in him will grow even in the face of all you cannot know. Amen?